there could be good practices or bad practices. And I just, I found it, you know, a little bit depressing, but also a little bit like, okay, well, this is the reality of this industry may improve. It does improve, but I want to offer up a different way to do this that would be much faster in making change or taking some pressure off of those resources. Welcome to RAS Talk, the podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production. Brought to you by RASTAC Magazine, the premier publication for recirculating aquaculture systems professionals. This episode is sponsored by OxyGuard International. Secure, grow, evolve. Improve your production with tailored and targeted technology. Hello, listeners. My name is Jean Coden, and I'm the editor of Hatchery International and RASTAC Magazine. And back again with me is my co-host, Brian Vinci, director of the Freshwater Institute. Welcome, Brian. Let's talk about shrimp. Absolutely. And I know that you recently attended the 2023 Shrimp Summit virtually mm-hmm, uh, that mm-hmm. was held in Vietnam. What did you think of that summit? I think it was really educational. Um, I do not have any sort of, well, I can't say I do not have a grasp, but that definitely really helped me figure out or understand what the priorities are in terms of shrimp farming in Asia, for example. And sh- and it gave me a little bit of an umbrella um, overview of what sh- the shrimp industry is interested in, in terms of potential growth and um, technology and things like that. So it was a really good primer for me, for sure, for someone who does not have any sort of, you know, prior knowledge to shrimp aquaculture. It was a really useful event for me to try to make out to. So that was really good. Yeah, great. You know, as I've said before, I think shrimp ras is a really growing area. Um, You're seeing project announcements and people with some success, like our guest, uh, Steve from Transparent Sea, talking about what they've done in California with their RAS system producing shrimp and and getting a great premium price for that. Um, And and Steve mentions in the podcast, one of those things that we always point to is what do you need to build an industry? And one of the first things on that list is um, good genetics and access to those genetics on a consistent and reliable basis. And Steve mentions that um, uh, they've been fortunate that Homegrown Shrimp, uh, which is a division of CP Foods, has uh, set up a a facility in uh, Florida and are now producing PLs that they're selling to producers like Transparency and, and others and American Panea as well. He mentions that they are getting PLs from American Panea, which is also in Florida. So, you know, the, the shrimp wrasse industry, in my estimation, has one of those key things already in the U.S., um, as opposed to, say, uh, salmon wrasse, which, you know, primarily is getting their eggs from Iceland. And so I, I think that's, uh, you know, a good sign for shrimp wrasse in North America uh, looking forward. Yeah. Uh, So as Brian mentioned, Steve Sutton is our guest for this episode. He is the CEO and founder of Transparency, which is based in Downey, California, and he runs an indoor shrimp farm um, just two hours of L.A. He was a really great guest and he was very passionate. So with that, I hope you enjoy the Rast Talk podcast with Steve Sutton. 
Welcome, Steve. Thank you for coming on to our podcast and talking to us about transparency. Um, we're so happy to have you here and for you to carve out time for us. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with um, a quick introduction about transparency. So what makes transparency shrimp different from the shrimp that we're used to eating in North America? Yeah, so you guys may be familiar, given this isn't your first podcast, you know, that the average shrimp or prawn that comes into this country, you know, over 2 billion pounds a year comes from farms, uh, outdoor farms, typically, you know, outdoor farms, there's a wide range of, you know, sustainability and practices that are applied. Uh, But typically, they have a long, a long life in the freezer, you know, before they reach us. So I think for us, what's different about indoor farmed shrimp in the United States is freshness, uh, the ability to use the, the head of the animal as well. So we have a lot of chefs using that for for stocks and sauces. We have home cooks that, you know, like to pride themselves on their ability to cook at home and cook good dishes, you know, quality dishes with great ingredients. We have a lot of people here in Southern California that really enjoy that and uh, giving them a product that's so fresh and guaranteed clean is something that they they don't have access to on the open market. Um, it's not to say there aren't some good products that are farmed uh, that, you know, could maybe make it to them, but it's really a very murky distribution chain. You know, there's a lot of labeling issues. There's a lot of, uh, you know, just, just things that you guys know about already, but I think the average person would be a little surprised to know that you know, freshness, exact transparency into what's in the product, you know, what are the preservatives, not just what are the preservatives that you legally have to label, but what are, are there any preservatives? So for us, it's just being able to show people beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is local, it's fresh, it's harvested this morning. We put nothing in the water uh, other than, you know, feed and salts. One of the things that I was curious about was can consumers see or taste the difference between, you know, a transparency shrimp versus what a, a cheap shrimp that they might buy at a grocery store? Yeah, I think the answer there is absolutely, you know, an indoor farm shrimp, our, our shrimp are harvested from the clear water system after they're grown out. We have produced in bioflock, you know, some other folks are doing bioflock. And I think in both cases, subtle difference between those two, but a stark difference between something that was raised locally harvested either the same day or harvested and frozen right away, you know, spent no time out of the pond, um, next to the pond, you know, maybe an 80 or 90 degree heat, and then had to travel uh, a couple of hectares to get back to the processing where it's cooled down. I mean, I don't want to cast a net and say that's how every farm works. It's not, but there, there definitely are challenges to outdoor farming in terms of keeping that product integrity, especially when you're sending it across the world and you're not getting paid very much for it at all, especially nowadays. I mean, people are losing money, farming shrimp to lose money. So I don't think there's a ton of incentives there to produce the best quality product. It's just to produce the cheapest product. That's what that industry right now incentivizes. And so for us, um, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, we have a lot of customers that say this is the best shrimp I've ever eaten. Um, it tastes very clean. It's surprisingly sweet. Uh, you know, it, it's not all, you know, rainbows and butterflies. I mean, we definitely, when we recycle over 99% of our water, you have bacterial colonies that try to get established that may produce off flavor. So that's a big challenge in racet, you know, in fish and, and, and in shrimp as well to a degree. Um, so it's not all easy, but when done right, uh, indoor farm shrimp in a balanced controlled system, 
that I believe is done with a scientific approach. You're, you're adjusting things. You're very, very in tune with your water quality and your feed rates. I think, yeah, it has the potential and that's what we've shown to produce some of the best tasting shrimp that has a very different texture. Um, another thing that's really interesting uh, our customers find is shrinkage. So, you know, given that it's not treated with anything and in most cases it's not frozen, it's not glazed, it doesn't really shrink. So customers will have done, you know, cook, I've done it too. You cook side by side, something that's treated, you know, with a preservative, maybe something, a uh, tripolyphosphate or what have you. I mean, that shrinks 10, 15, 20% uh, versus ours that shrink very little. So that's another thing that has come in. Uh, we've realized, I guess the last thing I can think of on the top of my head is visually. So they visually look different. Um, and that's part of the reason is because we grow them in a clear water system uh, with a dark background. So they, they will be a little more vibrantly colored, a little more blue when they're raw and a little bit more red when they're cooked. Steve, uh, welcome to the podcast. This is Brian. I think our listeners will be really interested to hear about some of the technical details of Transparency's uh, production system. You mentioned a whole lot of the um, benefits to raising shrimp on land. And there are, of course, challenges that, you, as you mentioned, off flavor and, and many others. Would you um, give us a sense of where you're at now? What you know? What's your scale of production um, in terms of you know pounds per year? Any sort of measure of intensity? You know, units per square meter or kilos per square meter, and uh, and what the system uh, looks like? Just a description. Yeah. So I think to to start to answer that kind of big question. I'll start with the, the system itself. Uh, just a brief overview. Can't, can't go into you know too much detail, but the basic idea is it's a RAS system with the aim to uh, have, have control really. And if we have control, just you know, like in any fish farm, uh, we can really explore the boundaries of the carrying capacity of that system and hopefully figure out ways to increase the carrying capacity to yield you know, healthy, happy animals that get a top dollar. I think for us, it's not committing to just one system and saying, there, we're done. Let's go teach everybody how to do this. It's taking the approach, you know, borrowed from, from fish farming, fish hatcheries, a little bit from wastewater technology treat, treatment and put it all together in a way that serves shrimp the best. So uh, for us, it's a clear water system. I mean, it's not, it's not like the water is uh, crystal clear at all times. Uh, and that's, you know, some detail I probably won't get into, but it's um, something we've messed around with is different levels of clarity in the water and what kind of keeps the shrimp at low stress, but at the same time allows us to control water quality. Yep. And have them grow. The farm does not have a hatchery. The farm has a nursery and the farm has a sort of interim grow out that we sometimes use. Those are both bioflock systems, pretty simple. Um, and then, yeah, we have a, a clear water grow out system that we're pretty happy with and proud of. Um, the system, you know, has got physical filtration to start. So the water comes back from the shrimp tanks and you've got a physical filter and you've got a biological filter. Um, for us, it's, you know, the design of that is pretty important, but it's not like it's the only one in the world of its kind. Uh, it's more of the sizing and the operation and maintenance of it. That's kind of the key. Um, then we go into some foam fractionation, uh, which we're experimenting with, you know, and that's kind of relating to the clarity in the water. It's like how clear is ideal for, for shrimp. Um, the clearer the water, the easier to operate. You know, we can use cameras. We can definitely get a lot smarter, reduce labor. Um, but what's the right level of turbidity for shrimp to be happy and healthy and 
how is the bacterial communities playing there? Because because people know you know BioFlock works, and, and BioFlock is a bit of a bacterial soup that you try to control and and keep in your favor, but you don't really have any sterilization or ability to control. So for us, yeah, physical filter, um, biological filter, some degassing, and some some foam fractionation. Uh, we do supplement oxygen, and we have a little bit of sterilization, a couple different methods that we kind of try. Um, and, and balance. And then, and then it goes back to the tanks. Uh, we're turning the tanks over quite a few times a day, you know, not as many as fish, but a lot more than a lot of people might think probably, you know, around 15 to 20 turnovers a day. Yeah. Right now the system is eight tanks and that's capable of producing up to 1500 pounds a week. If all is going well, uh, we're producing about a thousand pounds a week right now. You mentioned a nursery system and you're happy with the performance, but what about your genetics? Where are you getting your PLs from? Yeah, so we started in 2020, uh, construction in the fall of 2020, and we've gotten PLs from about four or five sources. Um, lately, we've been getting the bulk of our PLs from Homegrown. Uh, so they, I think they appeared on the scene in 2021. Um, and so those those genetics come from Thailand originally, where they've made a ton of progress over the last few decades. And so I think that's really changed the game for U.S. farmers to have a faster growing animal. Uh, we've also done a little bit of work with uh, kind of through the grapevine, a little bit of American Pinead, but also a company called Infinity in Florida. They, they appeared around last year or so. So it, it's one of those industries that we're really grateful. Um, we take whatever we can get, really, um, because shrimp grows so fast that you need to stock them frequently in order to keep customers happy. You can't really just do, you know, if you're a fish guy with a slower growing animal, you can stock every two, three months and you got 18 months or 24 months or whatever it is to sort of stretch them out and make sure you can have something to sell. For us, we have to stock every two weeks. And um, I think that, again, we're, we're really grateful without a hatchery to still be in the game, but it is definitely a huge limitation when you're talking to banks or investors. It's like, well, if we, if we had access to, because I mean, look, things happen out of our control and our supplier's control. FedEx screws up a shipment, doesn't deliver the boxes, delivers half of them. You know, they sit in an airport somewhere and they overheat. And we're relying solely on that delivery and that quality. To, to come through. So it's a, it's a little bit of a precarious situation to be a U.S. farmer without a hatchery, but we're really stoked to have been working with uh, other companies, especially Homegrown and Infinity lately to yeah keep us in the game. And the genetics seem to be great. Um, again, genetics versus like individuals, if they had a tough travel out here for whatever reason, let's blame FedEx because they can't defend themselves or U UPS. Um, we're still, I mean, we've got no choice. We're going to grow those animals, but we, we do lab test them. We hold them for three weeks in quarantine, make sure there's no viruses detected or, or bacteria that are known to affect shrimp. But then if they're a little bit banged up and they're going to have a slow start, that's on us. We have to figure out how to survive with it. So to answer your question, yeah, uh, we stock about a hundred thousand animals every two to three weeks, uh, if all goes well, and we harvest around 10 kilograms per cubic meter. Um, you know, again, if we don't have the baby shrimp or our nursery success isn't there, then we harvest five kilos per cubic meter, but anywhere from five to 10 is, is our harvest, uh, targets we've been hitting. 
And you talked about the environmental control that a RAS system provides. And so that immediately makes me think, you know, um, what your salinity and temperature are. What have you identified for uh, your system as being optimal? Yeah, I think it's no secret that around 30 C is a good temperature for growing. So 86, 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, that's that's pretty well documented throughout the literature. And that's that's where we operate when it comes to salinity uh we've operated from a range of uh 12 parts per thousand even a little less up to 20 25 so brackish water you know somewhere around half the strength of seawater is where we are today i think one of the things that we you know focus on is really that water reuse rate and that's something we're pretty proud of not not like uh oh you know i can reuse my water 100% for 3 months that's a good story, but then it's like, okay, then what do you do? You dump it because you've got too much nitrate. Um, we're dealing with the nitrate in real time. So there's constant treatment of nitrate to turn that into nitrogen gas. We're excited to be you know, 99.6% water reuse right now. We'd like to get onto a new farm where we had a little more space so we can do some other things that allow us to get to, uh, you know, it, you're never going to be a hundred percent because you've got evaporation and you've got loss in the product, moisture in the product, but to get to a hundred percent water reuse so that there's no discharge is really within our grasp now. And I brought that all up just because you asked me about salinity. It's like, well, if you have discharge, you're discharging salt, that's going to affect your bottom line because it's expensive. And, you know, it affects your ability to get a permit for a bigger project. And so we've been really focused on reusing that water and keeping the animal health and water quality stable. Uh, to get as close to 100% as we can before we go and launch the next one. At the next one, we may increase the salinity. We'll see. Once you're not discharging, it's kind of like, oh, well, why run at a lower salinity? If, if uh, you're not discharging, you might run it a little higher. So we'll see what happens. You said something that reminds me of a colleague that a colleague said to me about shrimp farming. He is, uh, I think, you know, Drew Ray in Kentucky. Yeah. And um just recently, he gave a presentation on denitrification, um, essentially holding the water that has been used by the farmer for a production cycle and then adding a carbon source and denitrifying it to be able to reuse again. He has a couple uh, good um, comments about, you know, uh, having salt water in the middle of uh, Kentucky available to them. So, you know, they, it's costly. They don't want to waste it. So they do everything they can to save that water that was essentially used up and then recondition it for, for use in another production cycle. So um, uh, are you guys doing any sort of denitrification um, post-production or multiple batches? Yeah. So, you, you know, you can look at the approach of batch denitrification. Um, and we love what uh, they're doing at Kentucky State and just being a resource for people. I mean, we've had communications with Dr. Ray and has helped us and some of his staff as well, you know, give me a few tips on this and that. So it's been really great. I think that's uh, whatever, whatever monies they've received was, was, was funding well spent to get those guys to where they are. Yeah. I think we are doing steady. So consistent denitrification um, as opposed to batch denitrification. So batch denitrification can absolutely work. I mean, we do it here and there, um, but we don't have space. Our space in Southern California is so expensive. So to leave a tank sitting for days or weeks and then pumping the water out and then cleaning that tank and then pumping the water back in, it's something we've done, but we're not going to be successful if we need to do that. 
we're also not going to be successful if we get rid of that water. So we've kind of found a different way and um, it's just a, yeah, it's, 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 it's in real time, you know, kind of a side loop denitrification setup. Um, I can't tell you the total details of it, but it's, it's pretty cool. And it just kind of chips away at it. Um, you know, nitrate doesn't build up super, super fast and it's not toxic in the same way that nitrite and ammonia are, but it will definitely impair growth after a while. And so we just kind of try to stay ahead of it with a little bit of a side loop and we have ways to tinker with it to make it more active or less active. And we're happy with that. You know, that's part of our plans in the future, but I also think that we could be doing other things as well. You know, we, we could be growing some seaweed, we can be doing some other things to help sort of scrub that system and use that nitrogen that we paid for, that we, that organic nitrogen that came from the ocean that we, you know, as a critical resource, like that can be used. And there's a lot of people doing stuff with fertilizers. Just can you run a profitable business selling a product and also do these other things without becoming distracted? That's where we want to go next is, uh, yeah, it, being able to recycle those nutrients and sell them. If it's not in our industry, we, we sell them to another industry. Steve, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, which should have been my follow-up question earlier, was um, you had some experience before starting up Transparency. You had experience growing shrimp in Thailand. Can you talk a little bit about that and um, how that influenced the company and how you, you created the company? I worked for NOAA as a fisheries guy for a bit. Um, and I thought like Noah does a pretty good job managing the fisheries that we do have. Um, uh, but they, those fisheries only contribute like, you know, depending how you look at it, five to 15% of our diet. So that's to me, I was just like, well, that that's worthwhile. And I think it's in good hands. I think there's a lot of young people that, you know, get degrees and work for Noah. But I was like, man, I gotta, um, I gotta get out into aquaculture because it's happening fast, whether it's being done right or poorly, or whether I agree with it or I don't, it's happening. So I might as well roll up my sleeves and get involved in it and see if maybe hopefully I can guide it in a direction that's better and a little, and more resource efficient and more quality focused uh, and less sort of just commoditized and you know let the consequences be what the consequences are. Let's just make this product. So I got an opportunity from a fellow uh, University of Miami graduate years prior, and he needed somebody in Thailand. So I went there, worked for a company called Cyaqua. They're primarily a genetics company and they're owned by a feed company. Um, so yeah, we worked to set up a farm where there used to be a soft shell turtle farm. We built, you know, rehabbed it, um, adopted it for shrimp and uh, started growing Vaname there um, for a broodstock multiplication center. So we take the genetics from our company's uh, hatchery, focused on certain families. We you know grow them in ponds and then harvest out and sort of just, you know, the, the company as a whole looks at which were the most successful families and sort of bases their genetic, um, their breeding program on what we do at the, at the uh, broodstock multiplication center and the other centers. And then lastly, we would also grow them for broodstock sales. So that's what I did in Thailand to get familiar with the, the species, you know, coming from fish also, yeah, to sort of see the industry in Thailand and, and get a feel for driving around and, and learning like, what does a typical Thai farm look like? Not just what the media media might say, but what is the culture? What is the avail availability of say, I don't know, 
antibiotics? Like, is it really prevalent or is that something from 10 years ago? And honestly, what I felt just being objective again, I may upset people, but I, you could go to any farm store and buy antibiotics for aquatic animals, broad spectrum, you know, oxytetracycline type things that have been used for a long time and they're less and less effective. So, I mean, that's true. I, I just really don't care who you're talking to. Like that's still very available. It doesn't mean all farmers do use that in their production ponds, but some do when they get in trouble and they overfeed and they don't know what they're doing or they get out of control. They, they don't want to lose the whole crop. So um, yeah, you have this commodity pressure pushing down on them to produce or else and produce it for cheap or else. So it's just a tough system. It's not like I'm blaming one person. I just found that in Thailand, I did see like, yeah, one, one farm might be doing a great job. You know, an old man sort of staying within the carrying capacity, doing it the way he learned, you know, from his uncle and it's great. And then the next door neighbor is just pumping feed in really, no, really reckless, uh, discharging, you know, no permits just into the mangroves. And, and then the buyer who buys those shrimp is going to buy from both of them. So for us, that completely mutes our ability to make change by spending money on one or the other, because we, we will never know. I mean, that'll change hands seven, eight more times. And yeah, now there's blockchain and there's, there's definitely efforts out there to fair trade certify certain things, but we're talking about a behemoth, a behemoth like of production, you know, whether you're in India or Thailand or Indonesia, there's this farm, 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 farm. And from one pond to the next, not to mention farm to the next, there could be good practices or bad practices. And I just, I found it, you know, a little bit depressing, but also a little bit like, okay, well, this is the reality of this industry may improve. Um, it does improve, but I want to offer up a different opportunity, a different way to do this that would be much faster in uh, making change or, or taking some pressure off of those resources. I love your approach on this and, and some of your thoughts on the industry. And, and just for our listeners, just to get a, an idea of the scale of shrimp aquaculture versus, say, salmon aquaculture, which is a, a lot of what we've talked about in the podcast. Annual production for shrimp uh, globally, I think, is around five and a half million uh, kilos, if I'm not mistaken. And then um, or tons, excuse me, five and a half million tons of shrimp and salmon is only two million tons of shrimp. So it's the second um, most produced uh, aquaculture product behind uh, big head carp, um, which is dominated by China. So essentially globally, it's it's the number one produced uh, aquaculture product with, with such a huge uh, amount of production is Steve, you said farm, farm, farm. And, and it's true because, you know, you see the aerial photos, you know, and I've been to Vietnam as well. And it's, it's stunning how, how large the, the scale is. And I think it, it's just um, something that uh, our listeners, hopefully they get a chance, maybe take a look at, uh, you know, a few uh, Google search, Google images out there on shrimp farms and see, see what the scale of this industry is really like. And, and, and give you a sense of where transparency is trying to is to come from on this. And I know that uh, Gene has a couple questions on on some of that coming from uh, where you are in California and, and what that's like. Gene? Yeah. Um, Steve's journey from Miami to Thailand to Downey, California. Um, yeah. My main question was what made you settle on Downey, California? And what was the site selection right like? What was the thought process behind that? Yeah, being totally honest, I mean, it started with a business mindset of, well, California has, Southern California especially has a 
a diverse audience, you know, a lot of different cultures like shrimp in different ways. You know, people, some, some cultures of dishes that are raw, some of them are lime juice cooked. Some of them are, you know, any, any, anything, you know, to not to sound like Bubba Gump, but I mean, yeah, you can make anything out of shrimp and most people eat it. So I said, well, diversity will help us from a business standpoint in case, you know, one market changes or isn't working out or the pricing isn't there. You've got a live market. You've got a fresh market that values freshness over anything else and will pay for it. Right. So that was part of the reason to come out here. Uh, also, you know, from a personal level, you know, I was, I was single. I, I like the outdoors, the weather. Um, and yeah, it, it worked out. I met my fiance out here as I was trying to get this going. And yeah, uh, we started looking in Long Beach. I was living in San Diego. Um, my partner on the technology side is uh, Doug Ernst. He lives in Carlsbad. So we met pretty much right as I was coming out here. I was talking to a bunch of different sort of indoor shrimp farm consultants and yeah, we hit it off and I believed in his approach and he believed in my approach to the more to the marketing and sales side. So we met and I uh, was looking at Long Beach. Long story short, I was working two jobs and driving to Long Beach from San Diego and that fell through as the pandemic hit for various reasons. Um, and so we just looked around. I had never heard of Downey, California, did not know where it was. It was the second property I looked at after my first one fell through. And the pandemic had just hit this country and just was starting, we were starting to sort of figure out what it was or, um, yeah, we just got to work. We, we didn't want to spend too much money before we could show that it's viable. So the city here, the city of Downey was flexible with us and worked with us, but for a while it was definitely, uh, we're not sure this could ever happen. We ended up getting it to happen obviously and spending the money, uh, starting really the end of 2020 and early 2021. And then we were fully operational by the end of 2021 with our with our three systems, our nursery, our bioflock intermediate system, and our grow out system. And part of those early days, um, from what I found in my research, again, um, this was one of the funnest parts about researching transparency is because there's a lot of videos and a lot of farm tours that um, take place. I'll, I'll share some with our listeners. I'll share some links with our listeners. But um, yeah, was that part of... Um, an intentional part of growing the business and being out there and really exposing people to uh, the transparency operation? Yeah, that's a great question, Gene, because I mean, that was like a criticism of my early investors, you know, was was like, hey, you know, we trust you. This is cool. Um, but are you sure you need to do it in, in Los Angeles County? And it was intentional, as you say, to to put this in front of people and see if if anybody cares. I would have rather failed you know, with, with a million to $2 million, I would have rather failed kind of quickly and said, well, Hey, the world's not ready for this. or they're not willing to pay for this, at least, you know, starting in LA where there's a progressive mindset and a lot of things, there's an environmental focus, I would say, you know, a little more than some other places. And, um, there's people with disposable income. So I thought it was the right place. And then the media just kind of showed up. And, and so I am proud of that. I think that's something that I hoped would happen. Uh, and it has paid off. Uh, but at the same time, you know, every month I deal with the other side of that coin, which is you, you got some of the most expensive property you could have gotten to rent. So um, I think really what we had hoped for here is to prove that we can grow the prawns at a high enough density, that we can sell them at a price that makes us money when things are going well. and also 
people are, you know, interested in different markets. So I think every market we've tried to sell to, whether it's, you know, a little bit of sampling a live market, but, uh, or selling direct to restaurants or distributors or direct retail, like they've all hit, they're all successful, how successful and how big those markets are. You know, that's, that's going to be the million dollar question. One of my favorite videos that um, I did come across in terms of the farm tours was the Eaters video, the Dan Does video. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes of that? Um, how, when did it happen and like sort of what the what the planning process was for that video and I guess what the reaction was afterward? Yeah, I mean, I guess the expression uh, that if you build it, they will come, it's sort of has happened here for, from a media perspective and the, and the Dan Dan's video is a really great example. Uh, so it was just a friend of a friend. I, I don't know that Dan has an interest, uh, Dan Janine, he's a comedian in New York and works for eaters national company. He has an interest in like sustainable farming and, and kind of like cool mechanized processes, which we're not really yet. We're not a, we're not a shrimp sorting factory, right? That might be cool for him. But he, he was interested enough and believed enough in like trying to do thing a different, diff, things a different way that he was, he was really keen on it. And he said, let, let me come to your farm. Let's do a tour. It'll be great. And I said, I don't know. You know, could you come back? This is like April, 2022. And again, I'm, I'm trying to be profitable every month and do with sales and all that. And uh, this media stuff though, actually has turned out to be super helpful. So I said, all right, Dan, let's, so what do you, what do you like to do? And he said, I like to make things fun and the videos that move along that might make people laugh, but also teach them something and not too focused on standing on a soapbox and kind of telling people all the scientific facts. And yeah. And uh, so he came out and was like, trust me. I said, okay, well, I'm going to make it fun. So I gave him a wetsuit that we bought on Amazon as he had, he had expressed to me that he had a little bit of an uncomfortable kind of a fear of being in water. And so I said, well, it's going to get worse because there's shrimp crawling on you. So we, we threw a suit on him and put him in and kind of staged a little harvest. Uh, at that time, we were a little bit light on, on, on mature animals. So they were a little small and it wasn't perfect, but it basically got him and a small film crew to come in. And within, I think, a month, we had a million views. Um, so the video has been out a little over a year and it's, it's a, I, I don't know, somewhere around 4 million views. Um, so, I you know, I, I think that that was part of the vision for me, I, I didn't know that's how it would manifest, but it's like, how can we get to the average person that doesn't know anything about aquaculture and just show them like a potential path that they can choose? Because I think it's a lot more empowering to do that. Uh, and while it's important to certify, of course, I think it's important to like give people something that they can grab onto it so they can feel part of like, hey, I'm, I found this great company that's trying to do something different and it's cleaner for my health, and it's better for the environment, and I'm learning facts, like that's an empowering thing that can last. I mean, you can have a customer that way for ever, hopefully. Um, and again, it's not a soapbox approach of like, you need to buy this, and this is better than this, this is better than this one. Because I think customers in the grocery store, myself included, we get so confused. We're just like, I don't know which certification is better than that one or this one. And you know what? This one's a dollar cheaper. I have no confidence in the rest of it. Uh, I'll just get this one. And so for us, I think, yeah, to have that media come in and just say, this is media worthy and then have people share it and comment on it. We've gotten a lot of calls like around the world to like come teach us how to do this. So yeah, that's the story of of like one of our most successful videos. And then we've had a, a bunch of other ones since then. You know, see that that's a thread we've heard 
a theme more than a thread we've heard from other guests on the podcast about uh, consumer education is what it comes down to. That's what really what you're talking about is giving the consumer the story that explains um, the product and what's unique about it and specifically about the RAS produced product. Um, it's a struggle for sure for uh, all the producers out there. Um, but, you know, it sounds like the Dan Does series was uniquely um, uh, successful. And, and so that's awesome. And uh, I hope you guys continue to do that. And uh, I hope that we can put some of that on the um, podcast web website, Gene. Um, yeah, I got to share that link with you too, Brian. <laughs> it's yeah, great. No, I, I, yeah, it's great. So, uh, see, we're going to wrap up with just a couple questions about, um, you know, your plans for expansion and then the industry. Um, you know, RAS shrimp production is, you know, a tiny, tiny fraction of 5.5 million metric tons. Um, but where do you see transparency uh, going um, in terms of the expansion? And and do you think you'll have some of the same uh, issues and questions from investors and communities that the land-based salmon farmers have had um, in terms of, you know, permitting, that's been a concern, um, equity and uh, capital raise uh, without successful projects out there. I think, you know, land-based ras shrimp does suffer a little bit from the same thing as land-based ras salmon, which is there isn't a massive success story out there right now. But so so what do you think about those those challenges for for transparency specifically as you consider expanding and what does your expansion look like? Yeah, really great questions, I think, to end on, too. Um, I'll try to keep it focused. So I spent a lot of my time, you know, thinking about this now. Where we're at is what what keeps coming into my head is like, look, I I built this. This was modeled and mapped and designed to make money. Um, despite the high costs of rent, despite the labor cost and the fact that there's not a lot of labor that actually knows you can't, you know, this isn't. I'm not working for Apple. I can just hire somebody from Microsoft that has most of the skills I need. You know, there's a lot of training that goes into this. And if we're building a different system that people typically haven't been growing shrimp in, then the training is kind of starting over no matter what. So, you know, we've, we've had those things that, that I, I did plan for. Uh, but then, of course, there are the things that any small business gets hit with, things that I didn't plan for. Um, you know, we, we did have only a limited amount of money. So we had to cut costs and tank design and certain things that have come back to bite us. Um, you know, we, we don't have a hatchery, so that's definitely come back to bite us pretty hard a few times. So yeah, while we, while we set up to make money here, you know, we've broken even a few times, we've made a couple bucks, but I think what comes back in my brain as I think of what's next is what do we have to prove in this building? So we've shown that the system we run can raise shrimp up to at least nine kilos per cubic meter, even with a tank design that's kind of, eh, it's not, the design's fine, but the, the execution and the materials kind of failed us. So there's that. And then I look at, well, what's our biggest limitation to being profitable every month? It's not sales. I mean, I'm the only salesperson and we're, we sell everything that we make at a pretty incredible price um, of, of $20 a pound or more. It's uh Sales is hard as we as we even hear because yeah I have to do that in addition to my other job but overall it's not sales at least for the scale we're at sales not the issue uh, so I look at the hatchery and the supply of not only the supply of live baby shrimp which we're super grateful to have anything but if you have your own hatchery you control 
early on and, and you can cut your losses and say, Hey, these, these shrimp are not growing as well. You know, they're seven, they're PL seven, maybe for whatever reason, it wasn't a good spawn. Let's dump it. We lose a couple hundred bucks and we do the next ones and plan that out all the way to the sales. For us, we're getting animals that are, you know, three weeks old and they come in and unknown shape. Um, and again, no blame on anybody in particular, but it could be any part of their journey here. And that's been really, really hard. I think, I think it's affected our growth rates, which have been tremendous, but they could only get better. It's affected our ability to plan sales and, and really market aggressively. So for me, I've looked at, well, what else are we going to prove in this building? And the answer kind of comes up with nothing crickets. So I, I think we're going to keep operating here. Uh, we're, we're now looking for partners. I am a little bit slow on the numbers to get that back to these people. I've got 10 or 12 interested parties right now that we've had a few kind of conversations and we're looking at moving probably north of here between San Francisco and LA. Um, yes, I am also looking outside of California, but I think that uh, the market in California is really strong. There's a lot of strength in being able to say made in California. And we've already permitted and done it in Los Angeles County. So moving to agricultural counties is going to, I mean, yes, it'll be a bigger project, but we've worked through the discharge challenges. We have a real plan to discharge nothing. And I think, yeah, I think we'd be smart to leverage what we've done to keep that California market. Um, so we're looking to build, like right now we're a 30 ton, 30 ton farm, give or take. And uh, we're looking to build about a 300 to 600 ton farm. Um, I, I don't think that the thousand and multi-thousand ton shrimp farms a smart play right now, because again, it doesn't gain you that much. Our approach is modular. So, you know, you, you get a piece of land that's a little bigger than you need for the next one. And, and you start with a couple of modules, learn if there's any little more lessons to learn. I mean, look, we've been running one module for two and a half years. So we've learned a lot of little lessons. Our design is already changing a bit. But, you know, hey, it can change again. It can improve again. Um, the end of the day, the only, re the only way this mission is going to get realized beyond like a niche is if we get the cost of production down. So we have to really keep our eyes peeled at all times for ways to gain efficiencies, you know, reduce power use, generate our own power, reuse all of our waste products in some way. So I think, yeah, that's where we're, we're really headed is uh, a, a bigger farm, but not a gigantic farm. And taking the progress that we've made here by running one module and extrapolating that across three or four modules. Let me come back at you a little bit with a devil's advocate question. Um, you said uh, we have to get the cost of production down. And I'm not in business um, raising shrimp. You are. But you're selling at $20 a pound. So why... Why is it important for you to think about getting the cost of production down if you're selling at such a premium? It's twofold, Brian. It's keep the price high, keep doing what we're doing. Every day, that's what we do. But at the same time, underneath it is like, can we find partners with a long-term vision to support us and hopefully some strategic partners? And we're talking to farmers in California and investors all around. But basically, can we find a way to produce this that five years from now, the costs are 30, 40, 50% less? just opens up your market. And then if you open up the market, you can tell the story more widely. Maybe more people say, oh, this is the best. And oh, it also isn't that much more expensive now. Then I think it could snowball from there. The problem I see is that a lot of us just become these little niche bubbles, which is what we are today. And we've got to cross the chasm to become a scaled business. 
once that happens, I think we could really turn the tide here in the United States and say, people, because I know people care. I still work at the farmer's market and it's not just rich people, like poor people care, people that, that take the time or maybe they're just interested in the ocean, like, or have kids that went to a marine science camp or whatever, like all different people care about it. It's just, they're not really getting the information that they can believe in. They're getting a bag with a stamp on it. They're getting, you know, every grocery store, it says responsibly produced, responsibly farmed, natural, all these terms that have been used to make money have kind of ruined it for the real certifiers who are, who are trying to say, no, like this is approved. We paid somebody to go to India and look at the farm. So for me, I'm just like, well, I hope that improves. I hope it works. I hope that farming in the natural environment, you know, where there used to be mangroves, I hope that gets better. I know there's some efforts to allow regeneration of mangroves and incentivize that in Vietnam and other places. I'm all for it. That's great. But meanwhile, it's 101 degrees in Florida last week. The world is burning. I think we need to try to take a giant leap forward. Uh, and, and for us, the only way that's going to happen is if we, we advance what we've done, but then bring that cost down 30, 40%. So our next farm does have plans to bring the cost down of production by 30 or 40% already. And I think from there, it'll be another 2% here, like make an improvement in feed. That's another 1%. And maybe, you know, five, 10 years from now, we could be looking at producing these shrimp for half the cost that we do today. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to thank you so much, Steve, for your time, for sharing your story with us. Um, as you said, as consumers become more conscious, as we kind of empower consumers to ask more questions about where their food comes from, um, it's it's so great to kind of talk to you and um talk about transparency and transparency's clear vision and mission statement for this processor for for that future market so again thank you so much for taking the time sharing some a little bit about the business and a little bit about um the farm there so thank you yep thanks Thanks, steve great to have you on all right thanks brian there you have it folks um i know i I tend to sound really effusive when i'm thanking it thanking our guest uh during the wrap up but i i think it's i i think it's really valuable to kind of have people come on and share their stories and it was really great to have steve who's really passionate and who has a clear vision about what his company wants to do and where they want to go so i really appreciated that um what did you think about uh steve's thoughts on consumer education about shrimp and and how he wants to go about that yeah, you know, as I mentioned, that's a theme that we've heard from other RAS producers that we've had on the podcast about educating the consumer about the benefits and the distinguishing characteristics of RAS produced fish versus, you know, wild catch or other types mm-hmm. of aquaculture. And it, it appeared to me, or it seems to me, that Steve um, has already started with some good and unique ways to reach customers. And, you know, as we were signing off the podcast, he mentioned, you know, that they have a restaurant there and that some of that education even happens at the server level where servers are telling customers about what's unique about the transparency shrimp. So, um, of course, it's it's something that's critical. And, you know, the the U.S. in particular um, has a few nonprofits like the Seafood Nutrition Partnership um, that are working on that. But, you know, doing it at the farm level is also super important. And I thought they were, they're doing a really nice job of that. Yeah, absolutely. As consumers want to become more educated about what they're consuming, I think it's a really good opportunity for farmers to be engaged with their, their end user, right? 
Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. As always, um, show notes for this episode and all our episodes are available on our website with links, including that forum tour that we kept talking about. Um, links to articles, photos, and all of that good stuff. Go to rastechmagazine.com slash podcast. That's R-A-S-T-E-C-H magazine.com slash podcast. Please consider sharing this episode with your network and on social media. And follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss a new episode. Thanks again to our sponsor, OxyGuard International. Secure, grow, evolve, improve your production with tailored and targeted technology. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. <laughs>